This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. We've got a special second bonus episode this week featuring the NBC News broadcast of October 7th, 1941. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Bickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, the National Broadcasting Company brings you the latest news at home and overseas. Now, here are reports by our staff correspondents in three key capitals of Europe, from Berlin, Bern, Switzerland, and London. Now, first to the German capital where Alex Dreyer is ready to report. Hello, NBC. This is Alex Dreyer in Berlin. The German high command this afternoon broke its silence of the past few days on land operations in the east and stated where the new German offensive has been developing. According to the high command, a tremendous battle has taken place in the area north of the Sea of Ossoff. It's the first time that the high command has referred to land operations in this sector of the front. The official communique says that German troops, working together with their allies, are pursuing the beaten enemy. The high command adds that during the deep drive by motorized and panzer units into the lines of the retreating enemy, the staff of the 9th Russian Army was taken prisoner. But according to the communique, the army's commander had already fled. Along the other areas of the front, the high command reports that operations are proceeding according to plan. Another night attempt of the Soviet land forces on the coast west of Leningrad was repulsed, according to the communique. A majority of the transports were sunk, and the enemy units which managed to land are said to have been completely destroyed. The Luftwaffe last night is reported to have directed attacks against Leningrad and Moscow. Although not mentioned by today's high command, the port of Rostov on the mouth of the Don for the first time was attacked yesterday by the Luftwaffe. In the turbulent little protectorate of Bohemian Moravia, where the Gestapo is reported to be pushing through a thorough cleaning-up program, at least one man has had his sentence of death postponed. But, of course, only for the moment. He is Elias, the 62-year-old premier of the protectorate, who was sentenced to death after having been charged and tried with the preparation of high treason. But here's the interesting angle. Hitler himself ordered the postponement. 
According to officials in the propaganda ministry here this morning, the Germans intend to use Elias as a witness in the trial of other Czechs also accused of having indulged in treasonable activities. Czech papers have carried the report of the postponement. Negotiations for the exchange of wounded prisoners of war between the British and the Germans have fallen completely through, according to information available here today. The official Foreign Office spokesman today at noon said that the British conditions for the exchange are simply grotesque. According to the spokesman, the British expected to return but 50 wounded Germans in exchange for some 500 wounded British. The exchange was to have started today. The spokesman added that arrangements for the exchange were first begun on a purely diplomatic basis through the good offices of the United States, but that the British yesterday started to twist the thing into a propaganda offensive through the means of the British radio. The Germans are willing to make an exchange, he said, but only on a one-for-one -one basis. He then suggested that the British load up some of their boats with German internees, that is, women and children, and whereby a one-to-one ration exchange basis could probably be worked out. This is Alex Dreyer in Berlin, now returning you to NBC in New York. Now, next we hear from Charles Lanius in Bern, Switzerland. Hello, NBC. This is Charles Lanius in Bern. Reports reaching here this morning indicate that one of the bloodiest battles of the war is being fought in the area before the Russian industrial city of Charkov. After the capture of Poltava, the Germans are said to have thrown in heavy reinforcements in order to continue their thrust toward Charkov without a let-up. This new force is apparently meeting with terrific resistance. Moscow claims that Budjeni has succeeded in regrouping his armies and has started a fighting counteroffensive, which has completely stopped the German drive. The Germans say that progress is being made. They admit, however, that the going is tough, and one Berlin message states that the battle is developing into one of the biggest yet fought in the East. It would seem that the Germans are putting all they have into this fight, presumably because they feel they must take charcoal and then push upward toward Moscow before the winter weather catches up with them. All this appears to be in line with the German high command, supposed plan to encircle the Russian capital in a giant pincher's move from the north and the south. Although the heaviest fighting appears to be in the upper section of the southern front, extremely hard fighting seems to be going on all along the entire front. The Reds have announced the whole of Temeshenko's forces in the center, and important parts of Voroshilov's armies in the north have now moved into battle with the invaders. So with Budyeni's reorganized forces counterattacking in the south, Men are fighting along the whole length of the Eastern Front. The Germans to blitz on into Moscow and make their kill before bad weather starts, and the Russians to hold them up and subject their attackers to the uncertainties and difficulties of a long winter campaign. Today, the Soviets announced that the situation in the Crimea isn't as critical as it first seemed. There, mixed divisions of Red Infantry and Marines have tangled with the German infantry. The Russians claim the Germans were defeated. They also report another victory over the German infantry in the Odessa area. Odessa is turning out to be a hard nut for the Germans to crack. More than a month and a half ago, I was invited, along with other correspondents, to go on a military junket to Odessa. Odessa was then expected to fall momentarily. And from Berlin, it certainly looked that way. We were even told the day we would leave Berlin. Of course, that trip was postponed. And now those in charge of arrangements would like to forget about it entirely. They probably could if it weren't for a few comic correspondents who seem to get a kick out of asking officials when the trip to Odessa is to start. 
I run the propaganda ministry. They used to take it seriously, but now they've caught on and just laugh it off. Up north, Leningrad seems to be standing as firmly as Gibraltar, and the Reds deny that that city is in any danger of being taken. The Russians claim that if the Germans expect any measure of success in that area, it'll be necessary to maintain an army of a million men there during the winter. Another Moscow message contains a frank admission that the Germans are now numerically superior in tanks and other equipment. The report goes on to say that the German infantry divisions have greater quantities of automatic arms than their own infantry, but that this superiority is by no means a crushing handicap. It's pointed out in the dispatch that in spite of this armament deficiency, the Russian armies are still very well equipped. From these statements, it would appear that the Russians need the long winter campaign they're fighting for as a breathing spell, during which they hope to make up some of their losses in equipment. This is Charles Lanius and Byrne. I now return you to NBC in New York. Our next report is from the British capital. Go ahead, London. This is John McBain in London. British submarines have had new successes in the Mediterranean. The Admiralty today reported that the undersea craft have sunk or hit by torpedoes and seriously damaged 11 Italian ships. The attempt to arrange the exchange of wounded prisoners between Britain and Germany has broken down, and the German prisoners who have spent the past three days in the hospital ships at New Haven are today being disembarked and returned to their prison camps and hospitals. Everything had been arranged, and the Germans would have left Britain last night after the dramatic exchange of radio messages between the British and German governments. Then came the final German statement that in spite of the Geneva Convention, they were demanding a prisoner-for-prisoner exchange. Originally, all the British wounded, about 1,500, were to be exchanged for all the German wounded, less than 100. The last-minute German change of mind leads some observers to the belief that the whole thing was a carefully calculated incident in the German War of Nerves, intended to put the British government in the position of having to refuse to bring home badly wounded British soldiers. Although the exchange can mean little, in a war in which many thousands are being killed and wounded each day on the Russian front, relatives of the wounded British soldiers have certainly suffered a severe blow after days of thinking that their menfolk would soon be home. It was officially stated in London today that the British government now aren't prepared to risk being made the victims of a flagrant breach of faith on the part of the German government, more especially as the bulk of the British sick and wounded would clearly lose all chance of repatriation. It's officially emphasized here that the German government when the negotiations began, were only concerned with the prisoners of war and didn't insist, although they mentioned it, that civilian internees be repatriated. Then the Germans demanded the mutual repatriation of sick and wounded combatants in third countries like ERA, Uruguay, and unoccupied France. The British agreed to the repatriation of civilian internees and got together a batch of 60 German women prisoners to send home. The British also agreed to the business of swapping prisoners from third countries. But the last-minute German upset of the arrangements affecting the original exchange of wounded prisoners, who, according to the Geneva Convention, were to be sent back without regard to rank or numbers, seems to have ended the negotiations. It was announced today that Mr. Appley, the Vice Premier, is going to America as representative of the British government at the conference of the International Labor Office. The Air Ministry today publishes a booklet giving the most complete and readable story of the Bomber Command yet available. Bomber Command traces the history of the British bomber force from 2 o'clock on September 3, 1939, when a Blenheim began photographing units of the German Navy on their way out of Wilhelmshaven until just the other day. It tells about the flying qualities of bomber pilots and says that as far back as the spring of 1939, the French general staff was told details of British bomber strength and possible use of bombers was discussed. 
The French wanted the bombers to be used as a sort of long-range artillery against railroads and aerodromes. But the British pointed out that with the strength at their disposal, this would be ineffective. The French Air Force did no day bombing at all because they had less than 40 day bombers in their whole force. When the German attack began, General Gamelin refused to allow the British to bomb troop concentrations in Germany on the ground that civilians might be killed or injured. This policy limited the British bombing for 24 hours to German columns on the march, a difficult and unsuitable target for the heavy British bombers. On May 10th, the British advanced air striking force had 135 serviceable bombers in France. In five days, they lost 75 of this number. The Blitzkrieg from May 10th to June 20th cost the whole British Bomber Command just 40% of its first-line strength. Bomber Command for the first time officially confirms the well-known report that on June 10th, when British bombers based near Marseilles were to start the first raid on Italy, the French authorities ran military trucks out over the aerodrome to keep the British planes from taking off. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. And that's the latest news on the war. Now, Earl Godwin brings us word on developments at home, speaking from the newsroom in Washington. Good morning, folks. You know, the president is home about now, and he's getting ready to receive at the White House a group of congressional leaders, mostly senators from both parties, to discuss the ways and means connected with uh, taking some of the wraps off of the Neutrality Act, amending it or repealing it or whatever can be done. And just about the time this government is getting ready to place anti-aircraft and anti-submarine guns on the decks of American ships sailing the Leaseland Seas with American munitions under that Panama flag, the Panama cabinet meets and says, in effect, nothing doing. There'll be no guns on any merchant ships flying the Panama flag if you boys up there in the United States want to protect your munitions of war, as they traverse what's left of the seven seas, just use your own guns and your own flag. Thus, the little spunky outfit to the south of us rolls right over the legalistic expedient by which a great many American ships have sailed around the Neutrality Act. Of course, so far, the Nazis haven't hesitated to haul off and just let her go when one of those raider commanders squinted through his periscope and saw an American ship with a Panama flag. The president the other day mentioned the fact that they were thinking about putting defensive guns on the decks of these American-owned ships under Panama registry, and there was a, wasn't any question about it except where they're going to get the guns and so forth and so on. But this act of Panama, which might have been inspired, may hurry up the arming of American ships under the American flag. The president will go into conference today on that and other subjects. And from where I'm sitting, this conference appears to be a discussion of ways and means, practical ways and means, legislative means, as to what can be rammed through Congress and what cannot. Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, who knows the House like a good housewife knows her own domain, is prophesying that the vast noise over the religious freedom issue will not deter the passage of the two important money and credit bills before that body. One is the second installment on the Lend-Lease program, six more American billions for embattled Britain. The other is the measure to recharge the batteries of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which have run out of credit. And the Congress is restoring this power and will probably hear someone denounce Russia in the debate because Russia is going to be aided through RFC. Surely there will be a tremendous outburst when the Lend-Lease bill comes up, but not an outburst that will stop the bill. The anti-Russian sentiment in the House has been strengthened by the religious freedom 
Fuhrer or many opponents of the administration's policy do not believe there is any religious freedom whatsoever in the Soviet Republic, and that's all from Washington at this time. And that's the latest news we've heard this morning from John McVeigh in London, Charles Lanius in Bern, Alex Dreyer in Berlin, and Earl Godwin in Washington. This is the National Broadcasting Company.